Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. For the last several weeks now, we've been in the middle of a series entitled Established. And we've been looking at how we can establish a relationship with God, how we can be rooted and founded in the love of God and through this relationship become more like Him. And we we said that it begins by knowing God, that Jesus said that this is eternal life. You know, many times, most of us, when we think of eternal life, we think of just where we go after we die and we spend eternity with God in heaven and we have the Crystal River, we have the streets of gold, we have the walls of Jasper, we've got our own mansion, although I've told you that's not really what it is right now and we're not sure you get a mansion, but who cares? And so we've got all these things, these ideas about heaven, about eternal life is a place. But Jesus says this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, and know me and know me and know that you had sent me. So Jesus says eternal life is not a destination we go to when we die. Eternal life is a relationship we have on earth now. And so it begins by knowing God, not just knowing about him, not just about knowing what the Bible says about him, but having an intimate, personal relationship with him. And so how do we get to know God? Well, we said we get to know God, number one, by learning to hear his voice, by learning to recognize the voice of God. God speaks to his children. Now, he doesn't speak to his children today like he did in the Old Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, God spoke in a lot of different ways. He spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. He, he spoke uh, to Daniel through visions. He, he spoke through other men through, through, through actually, you know, Moses got on the top of Mount Sinai and spoke to God. He came to Abraham in the form of Melchizedek and then another time visited Abraham uh, as three different men and spoke to Abraham face to face. He, he wrote prophecy on the wall with a hand, just a floating hand in the wall. He spoke through donkeys. I mean, God spoke in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. And he still speaks to us today. It's just that as audible as it used to be. So we need to learn to recognize his voice. We need to learn to listen when God is talking to us and obey what God tells us to do. The next thing we said we need to do to establish a relationship with God, not just listen to God, but talk to God. God wants us to be honest and open with him. God wants us to, to have a conversation with him. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is a conversation with your loving Abba Father, with your heavenly Father, with your daddy. He wants us to focus as we talk to him, focus on that relationship we have with God. When we go to God in prayer, we're not going to God as a subject approaching the king, humbly saying, oh, righteous king, if you would just grant me this petition. We're not going to him as a citizen going to a president. We are going to him as a child goes to their loving father. So we can focus on our relationship with him. We need to be honest with him. See, God does, we're very good at lying to ourselves about how good we are. 
You know, too many times we'll go to God and we'll start confessing sin, but we've always got that one we don't want to confess. And we think, well, I just, I won't mention that and he won't know. Yes, he does. He already is. When you confess your sins to God, God's not shocked. God's in heaven going, I can't believe you did that. Confession isn't for you to rat yourself out to God. Confession is for you to humble yourself and be honest with yourself about who you are so you can come clean before God. So God wants us honest with him. God wants us to invite him into every area of our life. There is no area in your life that God doesn't want to be involved in. He wants to be involved in your work life, in your entertainment life, in your married life, in your child-rearing life, in your professional life, in your private life. Every area of your life, God wants to be a part of. He wants you to invite him in. So we said, you've got to learn to hear God. You've got to learn to talk to God. Today, as we continue to learn how we can know God in an intimate way, we're going to look at how we can serve God. Now, America has a lot of problems. Let's just be honest. We've got a lot of issues we've got to deal with. But there is something about America that makes millions of people each year flock to America. It's, it makes it an ideal uh, for everyone around the world. So every year, millions of people flock to our nation to achieve what is known as the American dream. Now, the American dream is the idea that everyone has equal opportunity to be successful, to achieve their goal if they try enough and work enough and are passionate enough. Anyone can do anything they want to do if they come to America. And one of the best examples of the American dream being achieved is seen in the story of Edwin Shoemaker. Edwin Shoemaker, he was a young Michigan farmer in the 1920s. He was a teenager and he was expected to inherit the family farm. But Edwin Shoemaker didn't want to be a farmer. He wanted to be a shoemaker. No, he didn't. That was just his last name. He didn't want to be a farmer. He loved building things. He loved tinkering with things. He loved inventing things and engineering things. And so in 1927, he invented a new type of furniture. Up until this point, furniture was, was typically, it was functional. It really wasn't meant for comfort. It wasn't meant for style. It was meant to get a job done. So it was solid. It was heavy. It had no moving parts. A table was just a table. A chair was just a place you sat at the table to eat your meal. That's all it was. It was functional and sturdy furniture. But Edwin, he created a chair that had a back that, and a seat that you could recline in and lay back in your chair. Later, he developed a lever that was attached to that chair that when you pulled the lever, it kicked out a footrest and you could lean back. Him and his cousin, they made several prototypes of this chair and they would go around to different furniture stores and ask them to sell their new chair. And so they got many orders in. They became very successful. People fell in love with this furniture. And several years later, they had to open up their own factory to help make enough of these chairs to, to keep the orders going. But they had no name. And so they ran a contest to see what the name of the company would be. And the winning entry was Lazy Boy. So Edwin Shoemaker, because he had a dream, because he had a passion, he created the Lazy Boy Company. The business grew, 
And him and his cousin ran the company for years. And in 1970, the company went public. It was so successful that in 2017, the Lazy Boy Company reported a revenue of $1.7 billion. It's a lot of chairs. How many of y'all have a Lazy Boy in your house? Well, most of us do. You've got some sort of reclining. If it's not a Lazy Boy brand, you've got a chair that reclines with a lever. And that's thanks. Every time you kick back to watch a football game and fall asleep, Thank Edwin Shoemaker. Why? Because he had a dream. He had a goal. And so this, this young farmer turned engineer, he was often asked about the company. And he always would answer when people said, what did he think about the company? He would always say, well, I guess we did a good job. In 1998, at the age of 90, Edwin went out to dinner with his friends they ate a meal together, had some good times together, had some fun together. He went home, sat in his lazy boy chair, reclined, went to sleep, and quietly passed away. That's the American dream. Having a dream to do something you love, being successful at what you love, and dying in a lazy boy. That's the American dream. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't have the American dream because they had it in America. But they had the Roman dream. And the Roman dream was to rise through the ranks of society and reach the very top level of society. Everyone in the Roman culture was on a certain rung of the social ladder and everyone wanted to move up that ladder. The Roman Empire was a hierarchy with a class system. The goal was to move up the class system. At the very top of the ladder was the prestigious position known as the Caesar. The Caesar was the king of the Roman Empire. Right below Caesar, there was the Senate. The Senate was made up of 600 men. And every one of the 600 men who made up the Senate wanted to be the Caesar. But there could only be one. So they would work and they would scheme and they would plot and they would do whatever they could to make sure that when one Caesar died, which a lot of them did, usually at the hands of the Senate, that they could move up into that position. Below the Senate, you had the equestrian and the decurion class. This class were the wealthy landowners. They didn't have as much power as the Senate, but because they were wealthy Roman landowners, they could become part of the Senate. So they had a desire to move up the rung there. Now, to become a part of this class, you had to have a lot of money, and a lot of land. You had to be successful. You could buy your way into this class, but it took time to do. And these three classes, they made up the top tier of the Roman Empire. They had all the power. Just below the landowner class was the common Roman citizen. Now, they had more rights and opportunities than the conquered people. They could own, own land, they could run businesses, they could make money, and they could try to get enough land and enough, enough money and enough success to buy into the equestrian class and move up the ladder of the social structure. Below the common Roman citizen was the freedman. These were people who had been servants, 
but they'd been freed from their servitude. They could become a common Roman citizen. They could earn money. They could buy property. They could become successful. And they could make themselves into a common Roman citizen. And eventually, if they were successful enough and worked hard enough and tried hard enough, they could become a landowner in the Roman civilization. They could become a citizen, earn money to try to move up. Now, the lowest rung on the ladder were the servants. They were the lowest of the low. They couldn't make money. They couldn't own property. They had no rights. Now, if they completed their servitude and were freed, then they could earn money. Then they could get property. Then they could have rights. Then they could become a common Roman citizen. And then if they worked hard enough, they could become a landowner. And then if they were, were smart enough, they could become a senator. And if they were lucky enough, they'd become Caesar. So they could, if it were worked out enough and they tried enough, they could move up the social ladder. But at every rung of the ladder, the Roman dream was to move up. That was the goal. No matter where you were, if you worked hard enough, tried hard enough, did enough work, you could move up. In John chapter 13, Jesus takes on the hierarchy system that was impacting the community and the culture around him. He addresses the way that people thought and the goals that they had. He flips everything upside down to help us understand what life is truly about. In this passage, we see that being established in the love of God, being rooted in a relationship with God, really knowing God has a lot to do with our view about serving. So look in chapter 13, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So in the next 24 hours, a lot's going to happen. Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put on a mock trial. He's going to be denied by Peter. He's going to be abandoned by all of his friends. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be forced to carry his cross all the way up to the hill of Golgotha. He's going to be nailed to that cross, hung between heaven and earth, and he's going to die. All this happens in the next 24 hours, and Jesus knows it's coming. Nothing that happened in those 24 hours was a surprise to him. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that the rest of the disciples would abandon him. He knew what was coming. He knows what is coming, and the timing of what is going to happen next is very important because he knows he's leaving. Look at verse 2. And supper being ended... The devil, having put now into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. Now, right here we see that everything in the world is under the power of Jesus. Jesus has more power and more authority than Caesar. 
Jesus has more power and authority than all the empires of the world combined. Everything is under his power, including the hierarchy of the Roman Empire. That's why so many uh, Jews had such problems understanding and believing that he was truly the Messiah, because they expected the Messiah to come and conquer the Roman Empire and set up his own kingdom and show his true power, and that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come as a conqueror. He didn't come as an emperor. He didn't come as a soldier. He came as a servant. He loved people. He healed people. He helped people. But he had more power and authority than every one of them. He is above all. So what does he do with his power? Look at verse 4. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus, God in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, chooses to spend the night before his crucifixion Washing feet. All power of the universe rests in him. He is above all and has now put more power than all. The power of God rests in him and he chooses to humble himself and wash people's feet. He lives in a system where you're supposed to move up the social ladder. He was already a rabbi and now he is lowering himself in status, and he's acting like a servant. As usual, Jesus does something that is shocking and radical. He begins to wash the feet of his followers. There's a lot of ideas that people have about God. Some people see God as an angry judge waiting for us to mess up so he can smite us and punish us and ridicule us because he knows how pathetic we are. He's just waiting for us to slip up so he can lay the hammer down. Others, they view God as an aloof deity that doesn't really care about his creation. He created us and he sustains us, but we're kind of we're on our own here, and so he doesn't really get involved in our lives. But whatever you believe about God, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Speaking about Jesus, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, says, who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature. So if we want to know what God is like, his character, how he treats people, how he interacts with people, how he cares for people, we can see him in Jesus. How Jesus acted is how God acted. The character of Christ is the character of God. So whatever Jesus does, whatever Jesus cares about, is exactly what God cares about. And so right before his crucifixion, Jesus takes on the form of the servant. This is a picture of who God is. Now, Jesus isn't replacing the picture of God, the image of God with the image of a servant. Jesus is revealing the form of God as a servant. To serve is at the very heart of God. It's who God is. God came to serve. 
And look who he served. In this room are his 12 disciples. He knows that Judas has already betrayed him. And he serves him. He knows that Peter is about to deny him. And he serves him. He knows the others are going to abandon him. And he serves him. He knows that even after his resurrection, Thomas is going to doubt his, his resurrection. He's going to doubt that he's even God. And what does he do to Thomas? He serves him. He washes his feet. He serves the betrayer. He serves the denier. He serves the doubter. He serves those who don't deserve it. He humbles himself. And notice how Jesus serves them. He washes their feet. Now in this time, they would have been wearing sandals, if they had on footwear at all. And of course, the streets weren't paved. They were, they were dirt. And what happens to dirt when it gets wet? It turns into mud. There was no sewer system. So most of the streets had on them animal excrement and human excrement. It was, it was a disgusting thing. That's why they would typically have a servant wash their feet when they came to the house. Because when you come into the house, your feet are just, just nasty. They're filthy and disgusting. And usually the, the, the host never did this. The rabbi never did this. But here's Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, washing the filth off the feet of his disciples. But he goes further than that. Takes off his garments, wraps himself in a towel. As he washes their feet, he wipes them with the towel that he is wearing. He could have gotten a second towel. He could have had it from an arm's length away. But he takes their filth on him. He chose to give us an example. He gave us a picture of who he is and what he is doing. He takes all the filth and the garbage from their feet and he wears it on himself. The towel would have been filthy, but he chose to clothe himself in it. Jesus right here is giving us a picture of the gospel. The word gospel means the good news. And the good news is that we were covered in the filth of sin. We couldn't clean ourselves. But Jesus came. He not only cleaned that filth off of us, he took that filth on himself. He met us where we were. He humbled himself. He knelt down and took our filth on himself. And he did that, that through the cross. He did it through the cross. He took our sin. He took all of the filth that we had picked up and he wore it on himself. And in this moment, it's a beautiful picture where that, that we, when we couldn't clean the filth off of ourselves, Jesus took it upon himself. And that's what makes Christianity different than every other faith on the planet. Because Christianity is not about me cleaning my own filth up. Because I can't. 
Christianity isn't about me figuring out how to get myself clean. It's not trying to work out my own salvation. Christianity is about God meeting me where I am and allowing Him to wash the filth off of me. Allowing God to cleanse me from my sin when I couldn't. And so Jesus, He's wrapped in a towel. He's washing His disciples' feet. He's done Judas. He's gotten to Thomas. He's done all this. And now He's covered in their filth. But then He gets to Peter. So look at verse number 6. Then cometh He to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto Him, Lord, dost Thou wash my feet? Peter's kind of dense. Let's just agree with that. He's seen Jesus already wash the other disciples' feet. And then he gets to Peter and he goes, Oh, Jesus, you want to wash my feet? I didn't understand what's going on here. So he, he kind of asks Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, uh, are you going to wash my feet? I'm not, I'm not sure I can receive this from you. Look what Jesus says in verse number 7. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Jesus says, I understand. I know you don't understand what I'm doing right now. I know it doesn't click because I've been teaching you for three and a half years and it, just, it doesn't click with you guys. So you don't understand what I'm doing, but, but one day when I'm gone, you'll understand what's going on here. You'll understand it. Look what Peter says in verse number 8. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Can you imagine looking in the face of Jesus and telling him no? Tangent, we do it all the time. Jesus lays something on our heart, God lays something on our heart to talk to someone or to go somewhere or to do something, and we say no. Now, we're not doing it right in his face, but that's what Peter did. I mean, imagine the scene. Peter is sitting in a chair, and here is God in the flesh, kneeling before him, covered in a filthy towel, with a, 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 a basin of water there, about to wash his feet. And Peter says, you ain't touching my feet, God. Well, look what Jesus says next in verse number 8. He says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Suddenly, Peter has a change of heart. Look at verse number 9. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter says, well, if we're going to do this thing, let's go all the way. Let's get a manicure, pedicure, shampoo, shave. Let's do it all. Let's go the whole nine yards. Jesus is teaching us a very valuable lesson here. He is telling us that the Christian life begins with him serving us. That's how you become a Christian. Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus took all your sin. He paid the penalty for that sin. The wrath of God was laid on him, and he paid a sin debt you could not pay. He served you. The Christian life begins not by you being good enough to try to get enough you know, goodwill with God and try to work hard enough and be a good enough person that maybe, maybe if you're good enough you can earn God doing this. No, no, no. The Christian life is God meeting you in your filth and in your sin and in your wretchedness and doing for you what you could never do. It's allowing Jesus to meet you where you are and to clean off the dirt of your sin and your shame. It begins 
by humbling yourself and allowing Jesus to do for you what you can never do for yourself. Because it takes humility to say, King of kings, you can clean my feet. It's allowing God to serve you, but it doesn't end there. That's where it starts. That's not where it ends. The Christian life is learning to receive the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus, and then learning to give it to others. Look at verse number 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garment and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done? Again, he's trying, he goes, All right, we've had this moment. You're probably confused. You're probably not sure what's going on. Do, do you get what I'm laying down? Do you try to understand what I'm teaching you? It says in verse 13, Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so am I, so I am. If then I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. He didn't say, if you know these things, man, you're going to be happy. He said, no, if you know these things, you'll be happy if you do them. That's incredible. Jesus just tells them, I did all this to teach you a lesson. I have given you an example of how you are to serve each other. Now that you know what I'm teaching, now that you know what I'm trying to get across, you will be happy, you will be blessed if you do what I've taught you. But what makes them happy and what makes them blessed is not just knowing the lesson, it's doing what, they're, what they've learned. The blessing comes from doing, not just hearing it, not just knowing it, but actually doing it. That's what makes you happy. Whenever Jesus makes a promise, he fulfills it 100% of the time. And here, he makes us a promise. If we do these things, then we'll be blessed. If we do these things, then we'll be happy. It isn't just about knowing what to do, it's applying what you know. So in a relationship with God, it's not about just knowing what to do, but it's about putting what you know to do in practice. It is doing what God's Word says. And here, Jesus says very clearly, He wants us to serve others. And the thing is, we serve God by serving others. Serving God means serving... Jesus connects these two things. Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, with everything you are. Then he says, the second commandment is just as important and just like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love requires action. You can't love without serving. You can't love without doing. 
You can say, oh, I love my neighbor, but if you never do anything for your neighbor, you don't really love them. Because God didn't just stay up in heaven and say, I love humanity, sure hope they find a way to me. No, he says, I love man. I love humanity. So I'm going to go. I'm going to become a human. I'm going to live a perfect, sinless life. I'm going to take their filth on myself. I'm going to die a death that I don't deserve. I'm going to, to take a punishment that they deserve. I'm going to be killed for them. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise three days later to redeem them to God the Father. I love, so I'm going to do. So if we love, we have to serve. The way you love and serve an invisible God is by loving and serving our visible neighbors. We serve God by serving in the church. We serve God by serving in our community. We serve God by serving in our workplace. We serve God by serving in the marketplace. We serve God by serving in our homes and our neighborhoods. Where we see an opportunity to serve, we serve God and we serve others. We serve and by doing that, we are blessed and others are blessed by us. Love is humbling yourself enough to serve someone else. To give your time, your talent, and your treasure for the benefit of others. And Jesus gives us the perfect example of who we're to serve. Those people we like and get along with. No. He served people who didn't deserve it. He's serving Judas. I mean, the, I, it always amazes me how incredible he was to Judas. I mean, Judas, he's the guy who's just sold him for 30 pieces of silver in just a few hours. He's going to bring the Roman guards to have him arrested. Judas, who is going to kiss him on the cheek. And remember, Judas kisses him after Jesus has been praying so hard that he's sweating blood. So gee, Judas is, is kissing his cheek, and there could be the blood of Christ on his cheek, and Judas is rejecting him. The Bible says Judas wouldn't hang himself and went to his own place. Judas ain't in heaven, folks. He's in his own place. He's in hell, waiting for the spirit of Judas to come back. But so Judas, who's going to do all this to him, who's going to, call, who's going to set these things in motion that causes this pain and agony, Jesus kneels down and he washes his feet. Peter, who's going to deny him, who's going to cuss and deny him, act like he never even knew the man, who said, I'll, I'll never leave you, Jesus, is going to leave him very quickly. He kneels down and he washes his feet. Thomas, who even after the resurrection, and they, he comes to church one night, and they say, oh, Thomas, man, you missed it. Jesus was here. He says, uh-uh. No, he wasn't. I'm not going to believe it until I can stick my finger in the holes in his hand and shove my hand up in his, in his rib cage. I'm not believing it until then. That Thomas, you know, we all, you know what Thomas's name is? It's Thomas Didymus, but you know what we know him as? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas gets the king of kings to wash his feet. Those who weren't worthy, those who opposed him, those who abandoned him, those who rejected him, he serves them. So Jesus says, you know who you're supposed to serve? Everybody. No matter what. He's the king of kings, serving his betrayer. He's the creator of the universe, 
Serving the guy who's going to doubt, deny him. Serving the guy who's going to doubt his power. As a child of God, you are adopted in this family. You are joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are his masterpiece and you are free from the bondage of sin. And you are created and redeemed to serve those around you. And as we serve others, we are loving Jesus and we are loving them and we are blessed. Jesus wraps up his interaction in verse number 34 on the screen. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. And as, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, if you study the Bible, you realize that's not really a new commandment. That you love one another was, was taught all throughout the Old Testament. And so this isn't a new commandment, but the end of it is. But to love each other as Jesus has loved us, as God has loved us, is a new addition to that commandment. And Jesus, he just finished washing their feet. He just got done humbling himself and cleaning them. Now we are to love others, to serve others as he has loved and served us. Not because they deserved it, because we don't deserve it. Loving God means serving God. And we serve God by serving others. And by serving them, we're serving Him. But the greatest part through all this serving is that we are the ones that are blessed. We are the ones who are happy. We are the ones who become more like Him.